All right. A couple minutes past 9 o'clock central here. Uh, this is Colin Shots. I'm Seth Partnow of The Athletic and Statsbomb and uh, author of The Midrange Theory, still available on, in online e-retailers everywhere. Uh, it, people seem to like it, so give it a look. Give it a listen. Give it a look. Um, actually, I just learned uh, today that there's an audio edition coming out. I have no idea how long it takes. Anyway, enough about me. I am joined today by... Uh, I guess this is the first time you've ever been on one of my podcasts. I've done yours a couple times, but uh, uh, Shamit Dua of, of Bourbon Street Shots uh, um, of, of Pelicans coverage uh, joins to, to talk about the Pels and a few other things. Uh, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Seth. I'm super hyped that you uh, invited me onto your call-in show. This is, this is great. And you're right. I mean, you, you have uh, graced me with uh, your presence on one of this oh, like, weird ultimate pod that we did. Uh, but this is good because we actually talked some basketball this time. Yeah, there's there's a there's a chance uh, this is something that you and nobody else listening to this will 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 enjoy. But there's a chance that I might uh, be <laughs> running back the Lou Burris at, at some point on on this show. So let me, that was one of my favorite pods. Me, yeah, that was that was one of, that's still one of my favorite. No, he uh, we've been we've been chatting about some stuff recently. So maybe 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 just maybe. Um, um, that's a that's an enormous name in the in the ultimate frisbee coaching uh, community that nobody else besides <laughs> us two cares about. Um, anyway, Pelicans, um, it's been not the season you are envisioning. Start there. No, not not at all. And you know, I think it kind of started with uh, media day where they announced that Zion Williamson had a surgery on his foot to repair a fracture. Um, They kind of sprung that on everyone, and then they said he'd be ready for opening day. And then opening day came and went, and he wasn't ready, and then it's just kind of been this progression of, like, we'll check back in four to six weeks. Oh, we're going to check back in four to six weeks, and that's turned it into him being in Portland. Um, So outside of Zion not being on the team, uh, the team still had its ups and downs. They started off 1-12 and uh, with Brandon Inger missing a pretty big portion of that early season. And then they've kind of like meandered towards 500 ball um, after that. So they've they've quote unquote righted the ship a little bit, but they're still not like a, a fantastic team by any means. Sure. So let's. Uh, there's about four different ways to go just off of that. Uh, I had Sarah Todd on yesterday, and we kind of commiserated about I think um, a un I would say an unwise approach to media, fan interaction, fan access, information dispensing, what have you, uh, from from teams treating, you know, almost treating fan interest and, and media interest like it's a uh, a burden as opposed to, like, the reason the whole thing exists. Um, this, the, the Zion thing, it, the, the handling of the initial announcement and kind of stringing it along seems very much case in point. Like... Is this something, do you think this is something that they've known how this was going and just have doled it out, or they didn't know, and it's kind of caught them by surprise, or somewhere in between? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the questions that everyone has had regarding the whole Zion Williamson experiences, frankly, since he was uh, since he was drafted, since his first meniscus injury that first preseason. And, you know, I, I was around for that conversation you were having with Sarah. I, I listened in, and, and I totally agreed with everything you guys were saying with that like the covid era has made it possible for teams to have a a pretty tight con- level of control over the information they can 
divvy out. And I think with regards to Zion, there's a couple factors in play. One, um, his family and, and the people around him are very particular about how information is disseminated with regards to Zion and specifically his injuries. Um, and so they, they basically sign off on everything. And sometimes that, you know, that might mean they tell the team late and then the team is also then has to run it by them before they do like a public you know, announcement or something. Um, so I think with regards to Zion, a little bit of both uh, is happening where the team um, doesn't necessarily have all the information or is clear to give all the information all the time. And then uh, when they do have the information, they also withhold it and they are pretty you know protective about it and limited about it and um, kind of, I guess, Frankly, they just lie to you. <laughs> they lie to you because he said he'd be ready by opening day, and, and he wasn't. And I think I think they knew he wouldn't be ready by opening day. Um, but that's my opinion. So, okay. This is going to sound like a shot because it is. Um, it's bad enough if you let LeBron James be the GM of your team. Why, are, why is a, you know, it seems like the way you're saying that he, like, the level of de facto control as as good a prospect as he is, and he's a he's a you know one of the five best prospects of the last two decades coming into the league. I think is fair to say. But regardless of that, how do you how do you outsource your team to him before he's done anything? That 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 boggles my mind. Like there's just that just can't work. It can't. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of where they. I don't want to say like they went wrong in the get-go, but they, they've mishandled that. Because initially, I think they tried to kind of put their foot down um, when, when he had that meniscus injury his first uh, season. Uh, there was a lot of butting of heads between him and the training staff and, and how his return to play was handled. Um, and I think at that point, they were like, no, you got, you got to do this, and we're going to put off your return until you meet these benchmarks and criteria. And... Um, him and his camp were, were just not happy with that. And so he came back, he was really productive, and then uh, he kind of had this hamstring injury in the bubble that they hid, again, they lied, they flat out lied. Um, they hid from everybody, they did not even announce this. Uh, and then, you know, um, he came and played really well, and after he started playing really well, he started throwing his weight around with regards to the qualifying offer. Or I guess his camp started throwing their weight around with regards to the qualifying offer. And I think once those words were, you know, like out there that, you know, the the team was like, okay, maybe we should start accommodating him because holy crap, you know, he was putting up 27 points a game. He's really good. Uh, we don't want him to take the qualifying offer. And so I think they they got spooked and then they started acquiescing to all those demands. I mean, you have, again, that's, you have, you have two years. To, to fix that and, you know, make the team good first. And then, anyway, you, you, this is this is almost the extreme example of, of something that kind of annoys me when teams, like, fearfully make um, the accommodations well before they should. I mean, I think that the nearest one right now is probably the Michael Porter Jr. Uh, max contract extension for a massively injury-prone player early. It's just like, the the amount of of sort of risk team is is no longer sharing with the players. Just it it seems like a like an abdication, and it's something that just can't possibly. Um, it just because you know the, there's there's no reason to expect that 
regardless of who he has advising him, that that as a first and second year player, will be able to figure out the NBA enough to make that work well. I don't know. Am I am I am I going wrong with this or? Dude, no, I mean, I, I think I think I, I I agree with you, right? I think in, in in a perfect world, like the you know, in, especially with like how the CBA is created, that gives the teams a lot of power when it comes to retaining players like this. But I think Zion was truly a unique case uh, in the sense where he got a fifteen million dollar per year deal from Jordan. He's got several other multi million dollar endorsements deals, and then his qualifying offer was set to be seventeen million dollars. So that threat all of a sudden becomes a little bit more credible. Um, when, you know, you're like, normally it's a guy that's like making 2 million or or like 3 million and his max is like 30 million. And you're like, okay, he's not going to give that up. Whereas Zion's like, all right, I'm going to get paid $17 million just from my NBA contract. And then probably double that out of endorsements. Um, so I could take that financial hit, um, for that year and end up where I need to go. And I think whether or not he was willing to follow through with it, um, at that time, I certainly think that that is less of an option now, given his, his injury situation where it is. But, you know, whether or not he was prepared to follow through with it, um, I think it spooked the team enough to where they were like, yeah. OK, that's not great. And again, you have like it's part of the 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 it's it, the, the general part of general managing. It's the managing part that trips teams up. And this seems like a failure there. Because you yeah. have two years to be, like, even if whatever happened last year, you have two years to 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 fix it. And anyway, uh, enough of that. Um, let's let's like, what's going on now with the with the like? Is he is he rehabbing at Nike? Um, yes. is that a is that a bad thing? Uh, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, you know, kind of the the murmurs. Um, I guess not murmurs, but kind of the chatter behind the scenes is that he was he was feeling a bit down and and perhaps like. Had had a bit of self realization that some of his own actions were responsible for you know him being unable to play, and so I think he kind of needed to get away from it a little bit and go to Nike, and Nike was prepared to sort of take him in and, and show him their world class facility and uh, get him right, so to speak. However, um, I don't know. There hasn't been any update officially in terms of what his progress has been there, uh, and. There's supposed to be one coming this week. There was, I think there was supposed to be one Monday. So that was the rumor. Uh, but sometime soon, there is supposed to be an update. And um, honestly, I, I don't. I have no idea what they're coming up with. So I think what's going on here, he has a team of doctors that are uh, specialists that he sees outside of the team in L.A. Um, the name, specific name of the doctor slipped in my mind. But, you know, that's not uncommon i think he was the guy that did um kd and steph's like surgeries or something he was like a pretty um big doctor that a lot of the the stars have used and so he's gonna be the guy that i guess does the final like sign-offs and sends the stuff to the pelicans training staff or in medical team with regards to next steps or if there needs to be something more drastic such as zion having another surgery but we the public know none of what's going on sure i don't i like i get i i um, I actually don't think that going and training at Nike is the the worst thing because this is this is not a situation where he's work, going with like a, a workout guy. Mm-hmm. Like the, if there if there's a like a, an organization that, that whose incentives are aligned like more closely with what would be good for the Pelicans, then yeah. like Nike has every reason for for to for, to want him to be back on the court and awesome uh, as much or like 
from just a financial standpoint, and perhaps even more than the Pelicans do. So that's in in that regard, I it's it, it doesn't strike me as problematic beyond the fact that not being able to feel like that can be done around the team maybe maybe is is not the best indicator. Though, I mean, again. I think some guys function well when they're rehabbing around the team and some probably do better when they're not for, I think, any number of reasons. Yeah, I agreed. I mean, like, I don't know what the guarantee structure of his endorsements are, but, you know, if it's fully guaranteed, Nike certainly has more financial exposure than the Pelicans at the current moment. And, you know, and, and regardless of that, like, they, you know, they have, they've put a lot, like, they... They they've put a lot into him, and you know, like we said, he was he he was a legit phenom, and and him uh, delivering on that would be pretty good for them. Yeah. Um. So, um, is your sort of like modal assumption right now that uh, you're just he's just not going to play this year? Yeah, that's kind of been my baseline assumption after they he put off his return to play a couple times. I think at this point, um. You know, if he can get on the court, great, right? If he's, like, completely cleared, he's healthy, he's able to play it, like, the last month, I think that's that's really good. Um, I think that'll be uplifting for both the city and Zion himself, but um, I'm, I'm just skeptical. I'm just skeptical after all this is... All that's happened, um, the, the thing they keep referring to is the bone not healing uh, the way it should. And so, you know, if it's been all these months and the bone still isn't healing... I just can't help but think that there's just a, there's another procedure on the way. Um, but, you know, I, I have no access to any of these medical records, so no idea. Sure. All right, so that's, that's, that's kind of the dark storm cloud that's basically hung over the entire season for the Pels. But, like, taking that aside, like, it hasn't exactly been smooth aside from that. I mean, you mentioned the, the terrible start. Um, I frankly, like, the Pels are probably one of the teams I've watched least in the league. Oh, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't blame this you. Year. So, um, you know, tell me more. I mean, I think um, they they made two move two their two biggest moves in the off seasons. I say I'd say I liked one of them, uh, one of the moves for the Pelicans, and hated the other one. And I, I think you can you can guess which is which. But you know, yeah. kind of what's gone on. Yeah. So. Um... You know, they, they started 1-12, and and that was partly due to uh, a pretty difficult starting schedule, and then Brandon Ingram missing, I think, eight or nine games during that 1-12 and streak. Uh, so it was just, like, less than ideal to kind of, like, go through all of those, like, I guess, I guess major injuries, not having Zion and B.I., and trying to figure out what your offensive system is while integrating uh, two new components, such as uh, Jonas Valanciunas and Devontae Graham, um, respectively, I think they fall into the, the moves you like and the moves you didn't like. Um, but they, they kind of struggled, and after I mean, Brandon Ingram came back, there's not so much Graham per se, right? The the Lonzo. Sorry, um, I was like it, moving it was, off of Lonzo. Yeah, that that was more. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right, um, Lonzo for Sandoransky, Graham, and uh, not Graham uh, Temple, and uh, a second round pick. Um, certainly not. A good return by any means, um, and given you know just how San Ransky is not even in the rotation anymore, and Graham has been an abject negative every time he, he like hits the floor. Uh, not Graham, I keep saying Graham. Temple, Temple has been an abject negative every time he hits the floor. Um, but in, in any case, they they have sort of, I guess I don't know if they have like a true identity per se in terms of play style, other than like they they play hard, and so like that's kind of been the theme, and I guess. 
even like propaganda that's come out of the team is like they like Willie Green a lot. And I think they genuinely do. They really genuinely respond to Willie Green um, and they play hard for him. And so like they stay close in games until the talent runs out and the opponent, you know, like in the fourth quarter is like, okay, we can try a little bit harder and our stars will take over. Um, but when Brandon Ingram is healthy, the Pelicans uh, have, I think they've gone like 18 and 20 when, when he's healthy and there's something like two and 16 when he's not. I don't know, someone ought to check the math on that. But that's kind of like the stark uh, difference in terms of their play when, when he's healthy. And I think he's been legitimately good this year. I think um, uh, in years past, there was a little bit of questions with regards to, like, does he truly elevate a team? Is he, is he uh, um, do, his volu- do his stats, like, match his impact? And I think this year his, the impact is catching up a little bit. Um, still, still not like in the you know like the upper echelon of, of stars when it comes to the impact, but I think he's been a genuinely positive force uh, for the Pelicans. And um, you know, you look at his on-off splits; he's not a negative on defense this year, which is like you know he's he's making more rotations, he's giving more effort. Um, but I think really the the kind of like bright spots outside of Brandon Ingram have been the steady play of Jonas Valanciunas and uh, rookie Herbert Jones, or Herbert Jones has immediately earned the trust of the entire coaching staff to the point where they, you know, they, he's in the starting lineup. Now he's a fixture of the starting lineup and they task him with the toughest matchups from, um, they put him on the best perimeter player, essentially every single game. And then they'll switch him around to different positions as the game progresses. And he's just been outstanding defensively. And he's, he's progressed on offense, um, a good amount to where he's not a, I, I don't think he's a liability on offense in any sense. I don't think you can Tony Allen him. Sure. This, and and how would you describe his again? I I I saw him a, a little bit in college, and and he was a guy you liked the sort of the the feel and defensive potential, but did wonder about the offensive fit. So how how have they made that that work? Made it so that he's at least someone that has to be um, acknowledged by the opposition offense. They they give him the freedom to push off of of rebounds, and so he'll have the ball and sometimes even initiate some plays out of that. Um, you know, they, they, he doesn't run a tremendous amount of pick and rolls, but they've, they've started to like build in actions where he might come off of a handoff or he might get a screen and, um, they empty out the weak side corner and he'll have like some easy reads he can make to, to the, to the roll man. Um, they use him as a corner spacer a lot. And as a corner spacer, he's getting confident shooting threes. He's still not a high volume shooter, but his percentage has been decent on low volume. Um, but he's a really, really intuitive cutter. And so, um, when when Jonas has the the ball on the block and there's a double in there, or if Brandon Ingram's going on there and the defense collapses, um, Herb's been really good about finding the spaces to cut and sort of you know he he backdoors a lot of people and and sure. he sneaks in and, and gets gets um, uh, easy looks at the rim and he's improved a lot as a finisher. You know in summer league he would get a lot of looks at the rim and just miss bunnies completely. And I think maybe it's the the strength program that that the Pelicans are putting through or whatever it is. Uh, his touch has improved um, a significant amount from what it was. Just the game, for a lot of guys, just the game slowing down a little bit. So yeah. it's not like, oh, I have to get the, I have to quick shoot this up on the board. Just like, oh, no, I have, I have time to lay this in. Um, yeah. So the, I guess the big question, how, how you're, describe, you're describing him offensively, is, is he a record scratch guy? Um, I think this you know something that we've talked about this offline in terms of, of this came up a lot, actually, with the, the you know, some of the, uh, the, the, messaging about the Valanciunas acquisition is that like for a lot of guys, the, the percentage they shoot matters less than willingness. Now yeah. you, you're, he's still a low volume three point, but 
combining that with his cutting, is he a guy who, who, and has this something that's progressed over the season where maybe at the start of the year, he, you know, the ball would swing, swing, catch in the corner and, you know, record scratch. And is that, is that, was that the case at the beginning of the season? In? And if so, is it less the case now, or is it just something that he's always sort of figured out how to avoid? No, I think, you know, there may have been some moments in the, in the beginning of the season. I definitely think there are less now, but I think his feel, so he's a, he's a ball mover and I think he makes reads very quickly. Um, you know, his assist rate isn't terribly high. And I think that's just a product of like the way they use him, but he makes, he makes, he makes decisions very quickly. So like the ball reaches the corner, his shoot, pass or dribble decision making process is gen- generally sound, um, and quick. And so, like, maybe, you know, if he gets it in the corner, if he's not taking it, they're closing out to him hard, um, he'll put it on the floor and then make the first pass he sees. Or maybe he'll put it on the floor and just take it all the way to the rim. And so uh, I do think those record scratch moments um, are, are diminishing every game. No, that I mean, it is un, it is kind of unusual. The, 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 cor- the guy you relegate to be the corner spacer is someone who can actually do a little off the Because usually that's why he ends up in the corners, because he can't. Um, yeah. So that that is that is sort of an interesting wrinkle to what is a you know a fairly standard archetype I think in the NBA, um, of, you know guys of his rough size and and sort of defensive versatility. Um, how about you know let's let's talk about the the, the the trade that I think has been litigated and relitigated a bunch this season, <laughs> which is the the uh, basically the Adams for Valanciunas trade. And there's other stuff moving around with it as well, um, but. Um, including some other benefits for the, for the Pelicans, like like uh, like moving Eric Bledsoe, obviously. But I would say that both teams, and just in terms of the center swap, have got about as much as they could have hoped for out of those two players changing locations. Is that without you know asking you to com- comment super much on on Adams in Memphis? Like you have to feel that way about Valens in, in New Orleans, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there were moments uh, where you could have argued Valanciunas was the best player on the Pelicans. And I think those moments were primarily when Brandon Ingram was was out with injury. Um, but he's been that good. He's been just consistent, and, and you know what you're getting out of him night in and night out. And uh, he's been a little bit more willing uh, to let it fly from beyond the arc, which has been a nice nice development. And so, like, you know, he's never going to be a high-volume guy. But there, he did have this one random night where he made seven threes against the Clippers. Um and then the next three nights he didn't hit a single three, but you know how that goes. Um, but he's been he's been just solid, and and so I think the Pelicans are definitely happy um, with what they were able to accomplish with that trade, specifically moving off a lot of salary, um, gaining gaining that little bit of flexibility, not moving too far back in the draft, um, and, and still getting a player that they like, and then most importantly getting this uh, big man who they've signed to a reasonable extension, in in, in my opinion. Um, who who we haven't seen yet with Zion, but I think would still work really well. Sure, that was. I mean, that was absolutely. It was surprising to me that it did not work with with Stephen Adams and and Zion just for some of the reasons. Well, that can I can I push back smooth. on that? Yeah, go go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I thought offensively, you know, Please. I think they were fine offensively. Um, you know, uh, they had a stretch of two months where they were the league's best offense, that was kind of like when the point Zion thing was happening, and then they just got hit by, like, a ton of injuries towards the end of the season, and, and that that cratered. But, like, um, Zion's efficiency, um, you know, and, and even, like, rim frequency, like, was 
relatively unchanged when Adams was on the floor, um, and and he was still just this absurd heat-seeking missile that would uh, score at will at the rim. And, and Adams was really good at carving out space for him. And what really helped them was like between the two of them, their offensive rebound rate was enormous. Uh, they were the best offensive rebounding team in the league, and that helped their possession efficiency as well. Um, so offensively, they were fine. I think defensively, they were terrible last year. But I think there were there were a little bit more reasons beyond just like the Zion Adams pairing. I think what didn't work was um, the Bledsoe component, and and I think especially at the end of games in in high leverage situations where teams knew it was just Zion and Bi that were really going to be offensive initiators, and and you know Lonzo was going to go sit in the corner, and Bledsoe probably wasn't getting a touch. Um, that's when the issue was exacerbated. So end of game offense was a little bit tricky. But on the whole, I mean. I think Zion is just that type of player where you could put anyone next to him, really. I think he's going to look good. He's just that good. And so, um, yeah, I think I think offensively, Adams and Zion were surprisingly fine. Like, sure. No, the, the, like, I, the last year was just, like, overall, just a, just a weird mix styles amongst the, the starting lineup. Yeah. I think it's probably the better way of saying it is, is uh, they've, they, you know, they basically had four different preferred ways of playing amongst that five-person group, and so it never really, yes. never really meshed into the sum. The, the, the sum was the, the the whole was less than the sum kind of thing. Um, so, understanding that they've been pleasantly average in games with Ingram, what does that what does that mean as takeaways from this season? Like where? Um, are they a team that's going to be looking to, you know, we're a little more in the week from the trade deadline. Are they a team that's going to put value on pushing towards the playing game? Um, or is it, is it kind of a take your lump situation or is it even a situation where, Hey, teams might be interested in Josh Hart, you know, that, um, yeah. So like, what, what do you, how do you foresee that, that playing out? Um, you know, I think that that from the outside looking in, it looks like there are some, perhaps some crosswise incentives, uh, in the organization here. But I'll I'll let you speak to that, I guess. So uh, to answer your first question, um, with regards to what it means that they've been kind of pleasantly average with Ingram, I think this this idea of bolstering non-Zion minutes, non-Zion units, uh, I think has been a success. I think you you've created a bunch of different ways, and now you're going to have like a basically a season's worth of experience playing without him. Uh, to where, you know, you're you're going to be a decently efficient team or a good team when he gets back, in my opinion. Because I think if he gets back, I'm not really too worried about the lineups he's in, uh, provided you know he's in the shape that he was, let's say last year, right? Let's if he's able to replicate what he did last year from a productivity standpoint, um, the units that he'll he'll be a part of are just going to be good. And so where the Pelicans really hurt last year is when Zion went off the floor and the offense cratered and the turnover rate. Um, skyrocketed just because like they didn't have the ball handling, they didn't have the guard play, they didn't, um, you know, they didn't have the just a guy who can score it like Zion could, and that also hurt their defense. And so there was this like ripple effect of the team getting worse when he went off the floor. That I think is has been uh, the team has done a good job of dissipating uh, with the additions and and the play this year. So that's that's where I feel optimistic about um, that this should be a, a, a pretty good team if when if and when he's back. Uh, with regards to the trade deadline, I do think that you're right about like there's probably some like competing priorities going on. However, 
I, I don't think that they're in asset acquisition mode anymore. So I don't think that they will just trade Josh Hart for the team that's going to offer them the best pick, or trade Jonas for picks. I do think that they are big game hunting. Um, I think they would prefer... I mean, the, the biggest names they've been linked to recently are De'Aaron Fox and C.J. McCollum. And, and I think that they would very much like to improve their backcourt and their guard play. And so I can see them consolidating some of the salary they have on the team, plus uh, a few assets they have to try and make a splash in, in that department. And, you know, with, if whether or not Zion plays, I think one of those acquisitions will push them closer to 10 or, or better either way. Sure. I, and I think that you, you mentioned players just from a mechanic standpoint, it, like Hart is a, just sort of a, a guy that, that probably is involved in that. Just right. from a, a mechanical standpoint, I think I, he's the guy I bring up because he's sort of the, the not core player on the Pels who seems like you would be most intriguing to like a direct. You know, we uh, I think I've talked about this other places, but uh, um, you know, for, say for example, in a McCollum trade, it's not. I don't. I don't necessarily think Portland would have use of him this year, but he might end up in a third, in like a third team as a, as a, you know, like a fifth starter for the playoffs or something like that. But that he, but he's obviously, I think the player that draws the most interest from those type of teams, I would have to guess. Oh, I agree completely. I mean, I think, you know, he, he has that sort of like build and reputation of this like hard nosed defender. Um, I, I do think his defense might be a little bit overrated, uh, even though he tries really hard. But he's actually been um, quite a pleasant surprise this year offensively. His, his three-point shooting is still streaky and, and not very good. However, uh, he's a force in transition, and he's become a really good finisher at the rim. Um, and, and what's been surprising this year has sort of been his playmaking development. I'm thinking his, his assist rate's almost doubled uh, this year. And the, part of that's you know, just increased responsibility with uh, the talent on the team currently, but part of that is like Willie Green has empowered him uh, to sort of make these decisions, and he's not shy about hating playing for Stamen Gundy and feeling like he was put in a box, and and how he now has the freedom to do what he wants. So he'll he'll speak up about that. Um, he's not quiet about it, but yeah, I mean he's I think he's an effective player, uh, and and I think that I guess obviously his best asset is his rebounding. He's a really good def- uh, defensive rebounding guard, wing, forward, whatever you want to call him. Um, but yeah, he can sort of slot in into any team and and make an instant impact. You're right, and and, tr- and basically trust Nova guys is, is yeah. Is and his contract I- is really really appealing. It's, it was a really funny structure, but the team trading for it's going to have a great deal of control. Yeah. Um. By the way, as we're chatting, anyone who's got questions for for either of us, but particularly Pelicans questions, uh, raise your hand. We'll get you on the show, and and that's the. Uh, it's the fun part about, about doing this kind of live show rather than a regular pod. So anyone with questions, please uh, go ahead and jump in. Um, so you, you getting back to not the players going out, but the kind of players they're looking at, um, th- those seem like two kind of very different, even if they're similar positionally and kind of uh, combo guards with large contracts <laughs> between between Darren Fox and it's funny like CJ McCollum is now he's he's been a bad contract for so long it's it's or he's had a bad contract for so long it's not that bad anymore because it's there isn't actually that much left after this year there's only two years left um but you know which would you you know as as a close observer of the team which of those players 
do you think would be the would be the better fit? It's kind of interesting because one of them fits the timeline better, and the other one. It is my in my estimation, one fits the timeline better, and the other fits better from a skill set standpoint. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head, and that's kind of been like the debate. Uh, I would imagine that's the debate internally with the team, but also it's been the debate very publicly with the with the Pelicans fan base and media sphere. Uh, and and you're right. I think CJ McCollum like is is much more of a, a like a schematic fit, uh, an on court fit than than De'Aaron Fox, simply because of his shooting skill and his ability to play off ball. Um, and especially if you're anticipating Zion returning this year, even even next year, um, CJ McCollum just fits more closely with Zion. If Zion's going to eat a lot of on ball possessions, which you have to imagine he will. Um, and then De'Aaron Fox has the youth upside. He's under contract for longer. Um, he kind of raises your floor yeah. when Zion's <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he, he raises it's, your floor. It's, it's, in terms it's, a, of like I, it's a big number those last couple of years. Those are really, yeah. I mean, they gave him the, the full the rookie max contract without, I don't think they had the Rose Rule stipulations on his contract, but I'll have to check that. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, when, if Zion's out, you have someone that can eat a lot of on-ball possessions and, and sort of make um, you know, decent decisions out of them and at least score uh, with them, which the Pelicans just don't have in, in a guard right now. And and also, like, you know, this is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier. If if you're looking at a situation in the next couple of years, if Zion's not going to be on the team, then you know you can have a, a, a building block with Fox and, and Ingram and then whatever else, you know, with your picks and everything that you're getting um, to kind of go from there in terms of the timeline. So I think that that's kind of the view you got to look at it with. Sure. So, you know, it, forcing you to pick one. <laughs> you know, not, not, that, not that you're the one making the decision, yeah. but, but, you yeah. know, which, which as, as a, again, as a close observer of the team, like, the big swing or the 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 more solid low uh, like re- legitimately lower risk because again the like yeah. like the the variance on 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 what fox could be over the life of his contract is pretty enormous yeah um whereas you know McCollum, you do have a good idea like health aside you do have a pretty good idea of what you're going to get and it's not that much not that long in terms of, of additional years after this one. Yeah, I think, you know, um, I've, I've always been a little bit um, more prone to risk taking um, when it comes to my philosophy of team building uh, and especially in, in a market like New Orleans. So I think I, I would go for the younger guy who has a little bit more variance, but potentially more upside. Um, and, and then, you know, if you're, if you're hitting that upside as he's entering his prime, you also have him under control for a little bit. And plus, you know, I think for the, this is not my, this isn't going to my decision-making at all, but it's a nice little bonus for the fan base is that Darren Fox is a New Orleans Indian. And I think the fan base would love that. That's never a good, good thing to <laughs> take into account, really. No, but that's, 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 that's not my decision-making. Yeah, no, I, I that, that, yeah. that is, I, I, I'd forgotten about that. And that is sort of a complicating factor because it's, that's one of those, those funny NBA things that, yeah. um, a lot of guys don't like playing at home. Mm-hmm. Like playing, you know, with uh, I, uh, someone article on this a couple of years ago, and it's just like when you play in your home city, like the, the ticket requests and all just the stuff 
yeah. that, that kind of gets in the way of, of just being a basketball player can yeah. be a lot higher. And, you know, some guys, yeah, some guys like that, some guys don't. So, but as long as that's not really like, a, hey, the fans will love it. No. Is, no, 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 no. Like, yeah, I think I just go. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I think a little bit more pessimistic about like the future of Zion, and and like even if he signs, I think he's gonna sign the extension. If now, like, I think there's a legitimate question if he's gonna be given the full extension or if it's gonna look something like the Embiid structure. Sure. Um, but I, I personally think they just give it to him, no questions asked, and and you know he takes it. But I, I think. I still am a little bit pessimistic about like how long that future is going to last or, you know, what his health is going to be. And so I think I take a little bit more of the, the youth upside with Fox and that, that that's where my head is at. Interesting. Like the, you, you could take those same factors and go the complete other way. Yeah. Like, you know, all right, we, we, we have a short window. So let's, yeah. the guy we know is good now who, who skill set fits now. And it's, it's funny. You can, you can take the same kind of inputs and turn them over in, in completely different ways. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. So beyond like this trade deadline, like what? How do you see the team sort of moving forward? Like obviously, there's the the uh, the Zion question, like like hovers over everything. But there's like that's not the only. The roster is I don't want to say deficient, but obviously with Zion, this is this is still not quite a championship roster. No, I mean you, best, you could say it's deficient. I mean you yeah. the I think they're shooting what twenty two percent from three over the last like seven games or something like that. Doesn't sound um, right. Yeah, so so you know the surprisingly since their one and twelve start they've been adequate on defense, right? They've been about fourteenth, um, and and they've just not been very good. They've been below average on on offense, and a lot of that has to do with just not having enough uh, shooting and not having enough guard play, and I think. Whether or not Zion's going to be on this team, but especially if he is on this team, and especially if you're trading for Fox, they need to invest in shooting. Just, just they need to invest in guys who can make shots and space the floor. And so they can, you know, they can trick. Uh, I guess not trick, but they can like manufacture offensive efficiency um, through just having a, a ridiculous amount of paint touches with Zion and him being efficient, and then having a lot of offensive rebounds. So they can manufacture it. I just don't know if that's sustainable per se and and i i don't know where that takes you in the playoffs um they have to make the playoffs for starters but (laughs) um but you know i i just think that and a commitment and investment into shooting has has got to be um you know a a priority and so part of that's going to be playing trey murphy a lot a lot more minutes if he's not traded this deadline for one of these big trades um, but, you know, giving him a lot more minutes and then investing in more players like him that are theoretically, you know, large enough to switch around and, and uh, if they're not outright good at defense, provide you large enough bodies to, to do things on defense. It, is, this, is it a situation where with kind of the team you, you, one thought there was going to be there with sort of the, the, the Zion and Ingram axis in place that that puts someone like Devontae in more of a uh, more of a an appropriate offensive role where he's you know he's he's sort of a somewhere between a like a you know a 1.25 and a 1.75 <laughs> in terms of his position um, yeah yeah I think that the idea when they brought him on was that they have this guy who can play uh, off the ball when Zion's here be a really credible catch and th- uh, shoot guy 
and then you know he can handle enough to get the job done and, and play make enough to split the responsibilities between Zion and Bi. Um, but now that Zion's been out of the picture, um, more responsibility has fallen to him, particularly with how bad the bench guards have looked. Um, and so you know he's been tasked with being a, this game manager and and kind of running the show. And he, I think he's done an okay job. He hasn't you know he's not a very efficient player himself offensively. But the team in general is better when when he's playing um, and in the units that he's in, and I think it just speaks to like him being semi competent enough, and other guys aren't. Um, but yeah, I think his him having a, like a, a lesser role uh, would make him better. So let's let's talk about some of the young guards then. I mean, we say you know um, a player who all. F- freely admit that I, I liked great, a, a great deal coming into the draft and they showed some flashes, though maybe it was the summer league flashes of, hey, that guy shot a lot. Um, <laughs> Nikhil <laughs> Alexander-Walker. It's, it's um, you know, it's not hard to feel the uh, the heat of the anger of the fan base over, over the way he played at times this year. Um, yeah. So, uh, so what, what, like, what's got on there? What about some of the other kind of younger younger players either in the backcourt or the front court. Let's start with start with Nikhil. Yeah, so as you mentioned, he shoots a lot. Uh a lot a lot. Um he I think there was I don't I you know, I, it's it's hard to like analyze these players and try to get in their minds, but in my head, you know, I think he had this idea of like, oh, I'm the clear starting shooting guard this year and so like I can I also like am up for extension, so let me prove that I got everything in this bag, but I think kind of like how he's played since he's entered this league is that he's wanted he plays like if he wants like everyone to notice him and everyone to notice like how cool the move he made is rather than like making the simple play and so like you know he'll make a a left-handed like sling pass where easily could just could have been a chess pass um and and i think just him like overlooking the little stuff and focusing on the flash and not the substance is um led to some pretty poor decisions on the court in terms of shot uh, selection and just, just passing. But I think this year, uh, over the last few weeks, he's trending upwards uh, because they've really, really put a focus on him getting downhill and getting uh, to the rim. And I think that's sort of the best version of him is the one that creates rim pressure and is not the one that's taking sidestep um, 360 three-point shots or, or fadeaways um, in the mid-range just like uh, with 20 seconds left off the clock, uh, left on the clock. Um, so kind of, I think he's going to improve a lot once he gets his shot selection down and he's been trending upwards in that, but I don't think it's been, I think it's it might be like too little too late um, for with regards to, to him and this team and, and kind of where this team is going. So it's it, it just all comes down to decision-making with him. Yeah, no, I'm just it. It it's funny you I, I, as you were talking about him. I was I was kind of looking to see if there was any sort of uh, break point into w- which his efficiency has kind of ticked up this year. And and unfortunately, no, not really. No, I was kind of yeah. <laughs> I was kind of looking at you know that he he missed a uh, um, right around Christmas. He missed he missed a couple games and like his kind of before and after usage and efficiency splits are pretty similar. So yeah, I think Willie's like given him less minutes as the year has gone on uh, from from the beginning of the year. And even though there's been more injuries to the guard situations or to the perimeter, 
um, just kind of realizing like, hey, like, you know, we probably need to like minimize the amount of time he's on the floor taking bad shots. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think for his sake, he's at his best just getting downhill and kind of being, trying to be like, honestly, like a Tyreek Evans. Like you're never going to be like a super efficient player, but you, at least you can get to the rim and then maybe you can, you know, create some shots for others out of it from the attention you're drawing. Sure. No, that, and, and, you know, Ty, Evans, you know, as, as you probably saw in his time, you know, he, he could, he could be a, a cog in a, in a good offensive machine yeah. of because of the, you know, because of the pressure he, he put on the rim and maybe he wasn't, maybe he wasn't particularly efficient, but good offense could flow from him. Yeah, and he, there was a couple of years where he led the league in, in Kobe assists when Omer Ashik and Anthony Davis were cleaning up his misses, so it worked out. Well, that just means you miss a lot. But. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what about you know some of the some of the other uh, some of the other young guys? I mean, obviously, like the, unfortunately, Kira Lewis has been out. Was, yeah. a, was a player we I think we both like just for you know sheer straight line speed. I mean, a little bit. Maybe not as high profile, but a little bit of a similar profile to De'Aaron Fox in terms yeah, of just that, that, that was that definitely that jet speed. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he quite has like the vertical pop that that yeah. Fox has, um, but you know the the end to end speed definitely. Um, and I think that was kind of the appeal with him and the the comp that he made for himself, frankly. Um, and I think the appeal with him was that he would be a better shooter than Fox and and. You know, there was high hopes for him kind of coming out to start the year, and he had a little bit of a slow start. Um, and, you know, he's a, he didn't have much of a, a rookie year because he didn't get much play time until the end of the year. He didn't have a training camp, so this was his first real training camp and then first summer league. So it was kind of like a, like a you know, like 1.5 year for him. And he, he started off a little bit slow, uh, wasn't terribly efficient, wasn't shooting it all that well. Um, and then the, you know, Willie Green was playing around with the guard rotation, trying to put Sandoransky in there. And then finally, like, like the two game, like two games after he committed to Kyra, just being the, the straight up backup point guard, uh, you know, he had his injury. So it was really unfortunate, um, for him. And I think he's a player who, who needs to add strength. And I think that would help him both on his shooting from deep and, you know, just his overall efficiency at the rim. He's just a, a very small, slight player who just needs to get stronger. Um, but now, sort of like Jose Alvarado has been this revelation uh, for for the Pelicans. And he's a four-year player who was undrafted out of Georgia Tech. And um, he is an absolute pest. I mean, this guy is is going to be in the player opposing players grill gambling for steals all the time um just hustling putting his body on the floor just a guy that you do not want to like play against or play with the ball around because he will take it and he's also been an extremely um good caretaker of the ball and he had like a ridiculous assist to turnover ratio before i think the last game um he's still you know i think he had like not turned it over in like six straight games and um, but yeah, you know, the point being, he's, he's just a very, um, uh, good decision maker and, um, I'm not sure he's like the greatest scorer, but he can get the job done. You know, he had a, a fun night against the Knicks where he hit, um, I think like 15, 16 points. I think he had like 19 points like the other night or something. So, um, he's kind of finding himself on offense, but really just the decision making factor and the, 
Um, this, this his steal rate is absurd. I mean, that is, I think, the the biggest standout quality of him is he just generates turnovers. You do not see a lot of players with a higher steal percentage than turnover percentage. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, no. So that, I mean, that the the, the player type you're describing a, a, is a like a very is is a pesky backup point guard rather yes. than a guy who's uh, and that's you know it's, it's not not a terrible guy to to sort of find in in sort of. Um, somewhere in the kind of the T.J. McConnell, the Tyus Jones kind of realm. Exactly. Yeah. Although, like, though, you know, we we I, 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 we've touched on Memphis earlier with Stephen Adams that Tyus Jones is very good, and Tyus Jones is very very good. Is is part of the reason why like Memphis is good and was able to survive when Morant was out. But that's not a here nor there. Um, so we've talked about we've talked about Herb Jones a little. Um, Jackson Hayes feels like a weird player to talk about as a basketball <laughs> player right so now. Weird. No, just um, uh, just you know, because it it seems like there's there's you know the off the court stuff. It seems like there's a lot going on there too, which you know. Yeah. So yeah, he had that you know incident um, with the police this past summer, and um, but you know, so he was supposedly cleared of all charges at that point. They weren't gonna like charge him with anything, and then now like apparently the sheriff's department wants to charge him, but. The, they keep, you know, like, the, I guess the the word is that none of those things are going to stick. So um, whatever that means, I'm sure his lawyer will do whatever the lawyer needs to do. Uh, regardless of the off-court stuff, um, the on-court stuff, you know, he uh, sort of had a lot of hype coming into this season because the staff and David Griffin were talking about how incredible he looked in the voluntary workouts in the summer and how he was just raining threes everywhere and... He just looked like a complete basketball player. So there was a lot of hype, and, and Willie Green sort of gave him this opportunity to be the initial backup five behind Jonas, and um, Jackson looked terrible. He just flat-out looked terrible for the first portion of the year, and it's kind of how it started with him last year. He just did not look good to start the year. So he then gets benched for Willie Hernan Gomez, and Willie Hernan Gomez is a pro's pro. I mean, everyone in the locker loves him. He's like the... He's like the super awesome, friendly, nice version of Ennis Cantor um, because he'll go in, he'll be really efficient with his minutes. Um, he's a, a good scorer and a really good rebounder, not not a fantastic defender by any means, um, pretty limited in, in that area, but just all-around good guy um, and can just absorb minutes at the backup five and give you like, you know, nine points and seven rebounds in like 17 minutes, you know, really solid. Um so Willie Hernan Gomez started getting some time, and then Jackson, I guess due to injury issues or whatever, uh, worked his way back into the rotation, and now once again is the primary backup five. And he's been really productive um, as as the backup five lately. He's had a pretty good scoring rate um, over his last few games, and you know for for his season, he's, he has a pretty decent score rate. Uh, he's pretty efficient. What they've started doing with him now is using him as a four. Uh, a little bit when uh, they they did it against Cleveland and they did it against the the Pistons the other night and injuries have again forced their hand to to do that but they've done it twice against Cleveland and he's had uh, both of his like his two best games of the season have come kind of playing this four spot and they use him similar to Herb Jones as like they put him in the corner a little bit but it's mostly like a super dunker spot for him so they'll kick out to him and then he takes one stride and he's at the rim. Um, and he's finishing or he's cutting and, and sort of him not being the initial initiator of a pick and roll or a handoff 
has simplified the game for him um, because then he can play off of like an already broken defense rather than uh, relying on our poor guard play to kind of set something up for him. And then also it allows him on the other end to leak out more in transition uh, because he's not the sole person responsible for like ending the possession by a rebound. And and so it's simplified the game for him. He's become a little bit more efficient. I wouldn't say he's a, a good basketball player yet uh, by any means, but he's definitely had an upward trend, like like more, much more clear than than Nikhil this year. Sure. No, and and you you mentioned getting out in transition. He has to be. He has to be one of the fastest end to end bigs in the league right now. Yeah, I mean, he had this move the other night against the Pistons where uh, he was on the three point line. He pump faked and then like did not like I think he dribbled once or did not dribble and he, it was like a Giannis esque Euro step uh from the three point line and you're like, holy crap, dude, like you 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 see all these things and then you see like all the boneheaded stuff. So it's it's very hit or miss with him. But his highs are like very high and he, you know, has one he has this ability to sort of like get the crowd in the game because he can throw down some absolute ridiculous dunks. And I think that's not a quality very many players on this team have. So in ten years, when when one of today's point guards is the is the equivalent of Paul, he'll be the equivalent of uh, Javale McGee, who is having a, a late yeah. resurrection, playing with this with this savvy is a Hall of Fame point guard. I make that I make that comparison all the time. Yeah. I'm like, look, Chris Paul has made like Bismack Biyombo look into a, like turned him into a fifteen of fifteen machine. And I'm like, if Jackson Hayes had a guard like anywhere the caliber of Chris Paul, he would look a lot better than he does than he does right now. And then I'm sure like five years from now he'd look a lot better than he is now too. Yeah, no, that's 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 you know, I've been joking that people are like saying, well, Chris Paul can't be an MVP because look at like Jokic and Embiid's numbers. It's like, well, <laughs> if you add Biombo and Jalen Smith's numbers to Chris Paul, it looks pretty even. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, so we've been uh, again, folks out in the audience. If, if any of you have any any questions, been a been a pretty informative con- uh, conversation for someone who again hasn't watched a ton of Pelicans this year. Um, um, but you know, big picture, is this a team that that you expect to end up in the plan? Does how much does that depend on tra- on getting CJ McCollum from Portland so you can pass <laughs> Portland? Um, and how much does that affect sort of how this season is viewed? Yeah, so I think just not having Zion this year, uh, I'm just operating off the assumption he's not coming back. I think that's kind of gives everyone a pass um, and honestly might save a few jobs in the front office. Uh, however, I, you know, I, I do think that this team ends up squeaking into the plane. I don't. You know, the, the, of the teams below them, I think uh, San Antonio is a much more credible threat than uh, Sacramento. Um, and I think, you know, San Antonio has been playing a lot better as of late as well. Well, Murray's they, been, they had a pretty burning loss last night, I'd say. They did, yeah. Um, but, you know, they have some really good, I mean, DeJounte Murray has been fantastic. Jakob Pertl has been, been really good. And they've just, you know, Pop's going to find a way to make that team look look better than, than, than it is. Um and I think, you know, I think Portland ends up taking a step back. I do think, you know, whether or not that maybe the Pelicans get uh, C.J. McCollum. But if not, you know, I think they may trade up, end up trading Norman Powell. They trade, I think they trade someone in that backcourt just to kind of free up minutes, shots, and money for, for Anthony Simons. Sure. And so um, when, if and when that happens, and if Lillard's out, indeed out for the year, I think Portland takes that step back, and I think the Pelicans kind of squeeze in. 
the Blazers kind of try to try to get on the uh, the, the Raptors plan. Of, yeah. yeah, this isn't our year, but we'll, we're coming back next year, and we add, you know, Chad Holmgren or Paolo Banchero, and it's like all of a sudden we look like a much different team. Um, yeah. Which you know, it's a it is a uh, it is a credible uh, a credible plan, I'd say. Especially if they're able to get the Pelicans pick this year, um, you know, if the Pelicans make the play and not the playoffs, the the Portland should have a decent pick, uh, depending on whatever the protections are going to be there. And so the Portland can potentially double dip into this draft uh, with regards to prospects they might like, or use them as trade assets to just get better around Lillard. That's funny. You say double dip in this draft. I feel like this year was the year for a long time. This was referred to as the double the draft. Double draft, yeah. Yeah, because wasn't this the year that, that like kids were supposed were supposedly going to be eligible for the first time? Yeah, and I that, remember when they made that Anthony Davis trade. I was talking to to Griff about this particular pick, and he was like, "Yeah, this might be the double draft." And like, you know, this is when they had the Lakers pick. And I think once they realized it's not the double draft, they traded that Lakers pick uh, to Memphis. Yeah, I think that that. Uh, I don't, I don't remember if kind of the idea of the double draft just got eliminated more with the Ignite or with the onset of, of COVID or kind of was a casualty of both. But was like, honestly, I just like, that was something that, that we certainly talked about a lot. Yeah, honestly, I, you know, I, I, I wonder if the NBA has ever like truly been committed into uh, uh, forcing, I guess, I don't know, like just eliminating the one and done rule because I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like they kind of like the status quo where it is, and there was never really like an insane amount of momentum behind it. But who knows? Just to, it, it is interesting, just because with the number of different ways that uh, can now get to the NBA with sort of pro, and I think the league likes that, regardless yeah. of whether it's whether it's uh, you know the G League night, whether it's OTE, whether it's a year in college, whether it's playing in Australia for a year. Um, I think that just just having that, you, you know, these these players having a name before they before they show up in the NBA is something that the the, the league likes, and I think I think for good reason. Um, yeah, I just kind of a little bit like do a little bit of sorting to you know uh, get to not allow like the pure hype beasts to go like number two in the draft is 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 probably. It's probably not something they're super upset about. The also like from a scouting perspective, the double draft would have been a complete mess. Oh god, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I cannot imagine. Like, I, I mean, I think the scouting departments are happy they don't have to do that. <laughs> sure. Although, like having like having to judge the ignite and G League Elite or or and the OTE is 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 similarly challenging because the content. I, yeah, I remember having to scout Anthony Simons, and it's like, what is this? Like, I don't, you know, it's like he's, he's at IMG and they, you know, there was a couple of good guys on the teams they're playing against, but it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Tyler, uh, you, uh, you've been waiting for a second. Uh, what do you got for a question for us? Hey, sorry. It was, uh, stuck on the mute. Uh, hey guys, uh, actually a long time follower of, uh, Schmidt and the Bourbon Street Shots crew. But I did have a question for Schmidt. I've been meeting Axe on our spaces that we do, um, and I just wanted his opinion on what the uh, what the player evaluation team wise looks like. And uh, what I mean to clarify by that is the team looks like they had a lot of faith in Jackson Hayes and all, um, like he's already said, um, and they kind of came out, you know, not too well. So I guess my question is, do we think the team? 
is lacking in their own self-evaluation of their young players? Is there a blind faith kind of thing going on or maybe an investment model like the Spurs where they just believe in the young guys until they can't work out? Um, so I'm just curious about that. I think that's a that's a great question. I think most teams, I, I, I would say every team, but it's not the case with every team. I think most teams will like outwardly project confidence in the young players. Um, I mean, I think you have to do that from a valuation standpoint league-wide and just also like for, for the sake of your players. And so um, regardless of what they say, like, yo, Jackson's awesome. He's like, you know, the the best three-point shooter in, at camp or, you know, Nikhil is going to be this lead guard or 20-point scorer. Um, I think internally the conversations are a lot different uh, with regards to how available they are in trade. And and I think as these young players start approaching their extension year, uh, the idea of trading them becomes much more tangible because you then start putting a dollar figure on, on what it will take to retain them. And then also if they've improved enough to start impact winning in, in a meaningful way. And so currently I would say that I don't think they are married to any of their young players outside of Herb. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I wish I could comment more about Trey, but he's hardly played. Um, but I, you know, out of all of them, like Herb is their, their like one guy that I think they put a, a pretty big valuation on and it would have to be like a, an all NBA level player that they're trading for to include him in that. Um, but outside of that, I think everyone's very available. So awesome. I, I think I can speak to this more. Uh, yes. Thanks, Tyler. I think I can speak to this slightly in a general sense in that the happiest time in the NBA building is like during uh, preseason open gyms because everybody is, you know, you're undefeated. Everybody looks great. You can just sort of focus on the things that are good and, and no, everyone thinks they're going to get all the minutes and you're, you're going to exceed expectations and, and you're not down to like you know, having to make roster decisions and rotation decisions and tell people things they don't want to hear and deal with shortcomings that sort of come up as soon as you play the first preseason game. So I, uh, that, I think that, um, that, I think that aligns basically with what, what you were saying about, you know, teams outwardly say everyone looks great because like to, to a large degree, there may be some projection there, but Everyone's feeling pretty confident around that time. Certainly the kind, certainly the people high enough up that they're going to be, you know, giving the, the quotes that allow those things to, to come out um, are, are, are going to tend to be people who are pretty positive on everything. Now, you know, people on, on sort of my side of the shop, the analytics side of the shop might be like, eh, I don't know about this guy. But, uh, but you know, we, we are kind of in, in the basement, not... Not uh, not not giving not not quote giving quotes to the uh, local beat reporter. So that those opinions sort of <laughs> those are, th- those are, those opinions are sort of voiced quietly internally. You're just texting and, us on the DL. <laughs> oh shush! You get me in trouble. I I never once did that to you. No, not to me. Yeah. <laughs> not not while you're employed there. Yeah. Yeah. No. I I I am not a, I like as as you can say I'm not averse to a, to an angry DM or 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 text reaction to something I see or hear though. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tyler. That's a, that's a good question. It is. This is always a a. It's always a kind of a fraught question. Like, I think that you kind of have to. It, okay, 
do I see what they would have seen in this player? And then after that, it's it's a little bit of a die roll. And then it's it's as much a is our development system set up to to make this work as much as it is the, the initial talent evaluation. And that becomes a little, I mean, that that, that line becomes, because, you know, some players are probably more able to be developed than others. So it's that, that's a tough thing to unpack. But I, I, I do think that, especially kind of in this last couple of years when that's been a little bit weird, and for a team that changed coaching staffs over the year, like, um, I don't want to say I don't say a mulligan, but if if you kind of some like something being lost in that translation, I don't think should be on its own taken as a huge knock against against the the evaluations. You know, um, the, you, basically in the draft you win some, you lose some, and and it 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 takes longer than anyone has a career as a GM to really <laughs> sort it out just by counting up the wins and losses. Yeah, and if oh, oh, I'm sorry, Tyler. I I was just bringing Matt up. Uh, go ahead and jump on again if you have if you have another question after we after we get to Matt. Hey, Matt. Can you hear me? Yeah, hey, there you go. Sorry. No uh, yeah, well, my question is: there seems to be a big dichotomy between the way the national kind of writers view Lonzo Ball and the way Pelicans fans and Pelicans writers view Lonzo Ball. And I was just wondering if you guys could both discuss, uh, Schmidt probably has a better idea of how Pelicans fans feel. And, and Seth, you obviously have a probably a way that you feel about Lonzo Ball, but most Pelicans fans were pretty disappointed, I think, uh, with the way he played and were ha- probably universally happy to see him go regardless of what we got. Um, and I just I want perspective on that. That's all I have. Oh, this is a this is a fun question. Seth and I have had this uh, conversation to to some extent. Yeah, the, like so go for it, Seth. You're, we're, no, we're just you're like speaking of like the the irate text and DM exchanges. <laughs> a lot of them were about Lonzo Ball last year. Um, I think I think he's sort of um, uh, who's probably a victim of his like what he was supposed to be and what he is are two very things. And not just from a, how good he is, but how he like, you know, he was supposed to be this like offensive engine that you built a team around. And instead he's turned into a, a with great deal of credit to, you know, the, the, the Pelicans coaching staff uh, turned into a, a, a credible all shooter and a, uh, a borderline, if, if not more than that defense level guard. Um, now that's not the player you were expecting, but that's a pretty good player. Yeah. And, and I think in not only with what he's supposed to be, um, the other aspect that needs to be considered is kind of like what the team needs of him and how good the team, uh, is themselves. And so, uh, with the Pelicans, I think the, the calculus was a little bit different because, uh, they were just not a very good team. And in my opinion, um, committing a large amount of money to to that player while albeit like you know I freely admit that he turned himself into a very good player and a productive player that would help a lot of teams um I thought that making the team more expensive uh and sort of running it back was was not the the pathway to go for them um and I think if the the Pelicans were 
coming off of a good playoff run. They were, a, uh, you know, like a 45-50 win team or like the Bulls where they've committed into, you know, they have this baseline team. They brought in Vucevic. They brought in uh, DeRozan. And now you're bringing in a guy that is able to connect the dots between their high usage players and play defense and make shots. Um, that's sort of the team context that he really needs to excel in. And I was not optimistic that Pelicans would ever get there from a, from a team context perspective uh, to create the environment where he would thrive because as it stood, he was positioned to be sort of the third option on, on offense and his game to game variance was uh, too much for my liking to be in that, in that role. And so the Pelicans in my eyes would need to make significant additions um to sort of put him in a role that would have been more appropriate for him. And I think those additions would have been a bit harder to make um, with with the contract that he was on and, and what they were expected to pay Zion. And and frankly, I thought that, you know, Nikhil was going to be on an upward trajectory to where he would surpass Lonzo. He finished, like, last year pretty strongly. And I was like, oh, yeah, Nikhil's ready for, for minutes. And, and so I think that was part of an initial evaluation as well, which has clearly not been the case. So it's more a best case scenario that he like. I, I think I agree with you. Um, the the way I you're describing a player that I like to describe as someone who is someone you finish a team with, you don't start a team with. And yes. the the player that that he is and is likely to continue to be would be a great fit on what you hope the team is two years from now, and would be less less good on a team that is as uh, creation poor as as kind of this this version of of the pelt is agreed totally what is the what is the value dollar value that a fourth player like that is that is that the contract lonzo ball has right now is did the bulls do a good job with that that amount of money they paid for him or is that going to be too expensive for them looking into the future um, do you want to feel that one yeah no i think i mean i think that that like the bulls future cap is is a little ugly, but it's not because Alonzo Ball. I think that's, you know, like as good as DeRozan has been paying him, you know, mid twenties into his late thirties, like the Vucevic contract is gonna be an anchor. They still have to work Levine out. Like I, I think that Ball himself for a good team, um he's making basically starter average starter money and he's um, he's frankly for a good team. He's probably a little bit more than that. Um, he's not quite the. He's not quite like Mikhail Bridges, elite role player. But that's the, that's the sort of the the area that that he falls into. And so I think for a good team, which is again, this is mechanically why he's he's someone you finish a team with. Is like you know if you're re-signing him with bird rights for a team that you know you're, the opportunity cost of other moves you could make is is nil. Because you wouldn't be able to make any other moves. He's great on this. Uh, if he's actually keeping you from doing things and preventing you from adding the pieces you need to make best use of his skill set, it's tough. I mean, this is this is why you know universal player valuing is like is nonsense. Because <laughs> for most players, it's so situational. And and this and this is the exact player type that sort of illustrates that. Because I think yeah. as like he's 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 a value contract for the Bulls, but he. Like on this number, he might be an albatross for the Pels. And so, I, I guess that. So, my my last question, I'll hang up after this. Is 
I heard earlier you were saying that you, you did not like the move. In, in hindsight, no, you just said, what would you have preferred Gins do with uh, that Lonzo Ball situation? Thanks, guys. Um, I didn't. I thought they got negative value back, and I thought replacing him with Devontae Graham was, uh, you know, I, I frankly Graham is not a player that I think is is someone you want to be giving term in in, in term of eight figure salaries to. I just I think that's 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 a stretch. Um, so that that was more like I I thought that they could have if they decided that he wasn't the guy they wanted they. They could have have dealt him at the deadline last year, or done a a sign and trade that did not involve paying Garrett Temple ten million dollars to sit on the bench the next two years. Uh, he plays much to the chagrin of Pelicans yeah. fans. <laughs> sorry, oh sorry, I was I was uh, going best case scenario. Sorry, but yeah, uh, yeah. No, I hear you, especially with the with the deadline. I mean, like I was pro moving him deadline, and um, I was surprised they actually didn't pull Markinen out of it. Although he was very similar in terms of Lonzo, or we like, do you commit this amount of money to him? Um, you know, if 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 this is where your team is at, uh, and and I think the Pelicans were at that point like, nah, we're we're good. So um, that would have been a that would have been a better skill set fit. Agreed. I will say, I'm not, and I've never been a big Markinen guy. He's he's surprised me a little this year, but just from a skill set standpoint, he he would have made much more sense for them yeah. than than I think Ball does. So Tyler, sorry I, I hung up on you earlier. Uh, I, I, I uh, had already hit the next caller button. But, uh, what, no worries. What was, what was your what was your second question? Uh, so it was just kind of a follow up in general. So like with the Pelicans, I like to compare them to the Spurs and Memphis a lot, um, being. You know, in-division rivals, similar market size. Um, just two franchises have been way more successful than the Pelicans have been. But um, my real question with that is, as far as those small market teams, it seems the only real way to build is draft and trade. Um, and it just looks like the Pelicans, you know, with David Griffin, probably had one of the biggest uh, treasure chests to start with of all time as a GM, like to start with a franchise. Uh, arguably. Um, and my question is, uh, like, how do you feel he's done? You know, what mistakes do you think he might have made or would take back if he could? And, um, you know, it, it does. is he kind of like, is he kind of out of his league as far as running a small market team, I would say? Because a big story this free agency was he was looking at Kyle Lowry and guys like that, and, uh, you know, he couldn't grab him. He couldn't get Tim Hardaway, supposedly, Guys like that. So, um, really, I guess the question is, how do, how do you think David Griffin's doing overall? And uh, just a little minor bonus question to that: Would you trade back in a draft ever? Because, like hindsight, twenty twenty, that Jackson Hayes and Nikhil Alexander Walker trade when they traded back could have potentially gotten Darius Garland. Doesn't look great in hindsight. <laughs> so, uh, but that's it. That's the question I had. Um. Well, you. Why don't you take the draft question? You since you have. Uh... You, you've written some interesting stuff on sort of drafting theory. Oh, yeah. So I think with with, with the draft, um, you know, m- my findings show that I think this is not just my findings. I think this is pretty universal. Uh, you are more likely to uh, draft a player who's going to impact winning within his rookie contract. And, you know, you're, you're then going to want to retain said player who impacts winning 
um, in the top five and, and in the top 10. So I think um, just based off of that, like trading going from four to, to eight and 17 um, isn't, isn't uh, a great idea, but on like paper, when you, I think Kevin Pelton does like the valuation of like each pick, like here's what, you know, each pick is worth like traditionally or like over years. Uh, and you did all the calculus, like the Pelicans came out ahead kind of having like two bites of that apple. And I think at the time, um, of that specific draft, it was Zion Ja, and then like RJ, I think was uh, a clear third. And after that, it was a lot of um, question marks on like who's gonna go next. And so the Hawks ended up taking DeAndre Hunter at four, and then Darius Garland ended up uh, going at five. But there was this really like no clear idea of like who's gonna go where. And you have to you have to consider the fact that the Pelicans had Drew Holiday on the roster as well as just had recently traded for Lonzo Ball. And so like I think them committing to Garland would have been unlikely. And so I think they decided to kind of like diversify their their risk a little bit rather than kind of um pin it all on one player. Let's go for for two players, take the take the upside swing with Jackson and take a little bit of a more consistent uh swing with with Nikhil. And then I think they were also able to get off salary, which was um, a big goal for them. They moved off the Solomon Hill contract. Um, unfortunately, you know, I thought the trade at, at the time was fine, uh, given what Jackson's projections were analytically. Um, you know, he was he was a high efficiency player at Texas, um, pretty high when it came to blocks and steals, and and you know, he projected out fine. Um, but I think what where they went wrong specifically was when they created the cap space, what they did with it. And so what they did was it, they they paid two seconds to bring in Derek Favors and they signed J.J. Redick, where I think they should have looked, kind of laundered that cap space like OKC is doing now and Memphis did at the time and taken on assets um, for, for teams that were looking to dump players. And I think that's kind of been Griff's mistake over the past two years is he's spent assets on these kind of like veteran players that would help him win now where he could have been compensated to do so. So I think that almost gets us back to where we started this conversation in that it's almost like trying so hard to avoid a repeat of like, oh, we've got this talent and, and we haven't been able to put a team around him and now he wants out and trying to go too fast trying to, to avoid the, 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 the doing Anthony Davis all over again, basically. Right. And, and, but then you sort of, by trying to avoid that, you almost make it more likely by, you know, trying to do too much too soon. And then the team is bad. And really like the, the best way to convince a guy to stay is if you make your team really good. Yeah. Like that's, that's the single, like that's the single best thing, like a, a quote, small market team can do. Like if, if the Bucks were not a championship level team, like maybe maybe Giannis like stays and signs super max extension and stuff like that. But the fact that they are a championship level team and they're willing to say, "Hey, Drew Holiday is the best player and he's going to help us the most, and we're going to trade everything we can for him, and then let's go." So that that sort of uh, that that's convincing in a way. But if you're trying to, yeah, we're going to be great too early, and then it doesn't lead to much, then that kind of you dig yourself a hole that you're sort of constantly trying to get out of. And then, you know, that they had, you know, the, the best Pelicans teams with AD had four pretty good players. And then not much after that. And, you know, that 
the, the you know the the Aztec contract, uh, Quincy Pondexter's injury, like a bunch of different things, like like play play into that, right? But it's it's you're but you're trying to to walk to run before you walk, and you kind of trip yourself that way. So that's I think that's a an overall I think that's a of a piece with sort of doing too much to try to please a rookie, essentially. Yeah, or yeah, I, I think I think that's exactly what it is. And so this these um, the opportunity costs of of those singles and and, and doubles, and frankly, they've just been even like I don't even call them doubles, like singles that he's tried to hit by spending assets have have been enormous. Not just from the assets spent to get those players, uh, you know, a guy like Stephen Adams, they 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 sent a first round pick. They sent Kenrich Williams, who now, um, you know, Presti's asking for a first-round pick for that guy. They, you know, f- they ate up all their cap space. They forwent their ability to use the MLE. Um, they had to keep Bledsoe. They they put George Hill in that trade. I mean, there's so many little things in that one trade itself. You're just like, holy crap! When you tally like like everything that could have been like done based off of that, um, it ends up being a not insignificant amount. And you're just like after like years of small moves where you like have these misses, it adds up. And, and so it drains that war chest that you were talking about and uh, puts you, puts you behind the ball. I mean, I always bring it back to Memphis where Memphis uh, had the number two pick in a, in a draft for the Pelicans had the first pick. Their best player they had to trade was Mike Conley. They got significantly less return for Conley than the Pelicans got for Anthony Davis or Drew Holiday. Um, and now what they've done is they've been a good year, a good team every single year, basically, um, a better team than the Pelicans. And, and they've increased their asset chest rather than decrease it. They have increased it in the process. And the Pelicans have done the opposite. They started off at a better starting point. They had the number one pick and they've decreased their assets. Um, and they've been a worse team. And I mean, obviously injuries play a lot into that, but you know, it's, it's hard to overlook the, the starting points those two teams had and where they are now. Yeah, I think even you know, you, you even taking the injury out of it, the the injuries out of it, and you know, it's not like, and it's not. It, it should be noted that it's not like John Morant is is a player who doesn't, in different ways, but doesn't have have like how long is that going to last? Concerns in, in in kind of similar ways as Zion, but no, that, that that's a. I, I think I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, I do want to. I want to circle back to the just from a, a, a you know a mechanical insider view of of trading back in a draft. Um, this isn't how every team does it, but it's pretty common where you, you, yeah, you rank players one through 60 or, you know, one through whatever to encompass like undrafted free agents. But you also, but more important than that, you also tier them because, you know, like, I think there's a, there's enough of a recognition that like nobody knows nothing about these guys at a certain, certain level. So like, the difference between your 15th favored prospect and your 16th is probably pretty small. And so if, if there's a situation where, all right, you you were talking about that draft, it was like a one, two, three, whatever we want to say about our RJ Barrett. And I've said plenty, um, uh, you <laughs> know, and then they're after you, man. Yeah. It's, it never <laughs> stops. Actually, no, it, 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 it stops. And then he, then he has a game where he, he hits 50 <laughs> shots and it starts again. Um, so every couple of weeks, um. <laughs> uh, well, so no, but that that draft said it's like you get okay after those three, and then it's what? Then it's you know I, I you know I don't I don't have that draft in front of me to to see who it could have been, but it could have been a draft where it's like all right every like 
our tier, our third tier of players is 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 draft positions five through twelve, and we're pretty indifferent to among all those players. So if you get an offer where, like, okay, well we have five and we can trade back and get you know ten and twelve, we're gonna get two of the same like two players that we think are the same level than one, and we don't have a strong preference between them. So yes, we're gonna do that. So that I, I think. Or even a situation where, like in this, where okay, we can we'll still get a player in the same tier and also a player in the late teens, so that obviously makes sense for us. Um, now, difference in player valuation, um, you know, as, as 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 you mentioned about like the positional thing, which I don't think is always a great reason to draft. Well, it's a terrible reason. Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, especially for a guy who you know is 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 kind of you know is going to have kind of a wasted rookie year because he's coming off an ACL injury like, like Garland was. Yeah. Um, but we, whatever, that's a, you know, difference of evaluation in the player and, and kind of that, that happens. Um, so, but from a conceptual standpoint, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any problem with, with the logic of doing that uh, is, is the long winded way of, of, of putting that, even though, as you say, like you do like on, on aggregate, like there are some, some, uh, the, the drop off at the top of draft is pretty, is pretty steep. Um, that's the average draft, and there is a draft that is an average draft, right. just in terms of how it's of how it's 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 structured in terms of, you know, how many guys are at the very top, and and how swiftly and and many players are in each like sort of level down. Um, that is certainly much more important than kind of the average aggregate view of pick five versus pick eight or whatever. Yeah. I will say the one thing that gets me, people like to bring up Cam Reddish as someone that the Pelicans could have picked over Jackson yeah. Hayes, and, and, and I will always say that that, <laughs> yeah. that 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 is not an argument they should be making. I, I mean, I'm not a, a big Cam Reddish guy, and, and honestly, like if you, if you ask me, my honest opinion is, despite all his flaws, Jackson Hayes is a better player. It's like you're trying to get me in trouble again with Knicks fans. <laughs> um, yeah, um, no, I agree with that. All right. Well, th- thanks for the questions again, and I, you know I've kept you uh, uh, half an hour longer than I usually go at these things. So um, we I guess didn't even not... talk about ultimate, man. No, Crazy. man. I, I think I, all I, this I, Pelican I, stuff. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you know, co- coach your team up to nationals, then then we can come back and. Uh, I just did, bro. You gotta do it again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't recognize that nationals as having happened. Okay. Okay. Because they, they, you know, you, you kick the Carlton Ultimate team out, and it, it, it doesn't count. Asterisk. <laughs> yeah, um, that was a really unfortunate situation. I yeah. mean, like, I, that I remember talking to my team about that, and just thinking, like, if I was in their shoes, man, that'd be so sad. It's it the, the yeah, the, there there was a lot of bum people. Um, but anyway, uh, th- thank you so much for coming on, um, uh, folks. Who, thanks thanks for listening, everyone. I'm back tomorrow with uh, Nate Duncan. Uh, Friday with a professor from uh, professor of statistics from University of Wisconsin, Samir Despande, and on Saturday uh, doing my normal uh, about forty minutes of, of Q and A on Saturday morning. If you got any questions, uh, hit me here, hit me on Twitter, um, and I will get to those when I can. Uh, once again, thanks for thanks for joining me. Thanks th- thanks for coming on. This is fun. You yeah, know, thanks we'll for having to, me, Seth. We'll, uh, we'll 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 do it again sometime, maybe at, at your house again. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> cool. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you later.